come now to our first reading from Holy Scripture. This is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 2 through 10. This is found on page 1172 in the Bibles in front of you. Please now rise out of respect for God's infallible word. When the Scriptures are read, God speaks to his people. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As far as the reading of God's word, amen. And now we come to our second scripture reading as we continue to stand out of respect for God's word. We will continue on through the book of Jeremiah, looking today at Jeremiah chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. This begins on page 758, Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure 
his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we confess that we are people who are easily deceived, easily deluded, easily lured away from that which is of true and lasting value and worth. Lord, even coming here today is at times a challenge. And so we pray that as we have come, that, Lord, you would be pleased to break the power of deceit in our minds, that you cause your truth to reign supreme, and that you'd help us to truly see your glory, that we might worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God gave the book of Jeremiah for lots of reasons, but one is because God's people were idol worshipers. They had rejected the true God. They'd begun worshiping the gods that the nations around them had worshipped. And these are gods like Baal and Asherah, gods of fertility. And you have to ask, if you're thinking about this, trying to put yourself in Israel's place, like, what's the draw? <laughs> like, you probably weren't too tempted this past week to bow down to a golden statue. I mean, probably not. So, like, why was this such a big deal for them? Like, why, why did they so badly want to worship these little golden or silver statues. Well, here in Ohio, it's been pretty dry, hasn't it? Crops that are not irrigated are going to start dying if they haven't already. Now imagine you are a subsistence farmer. You don't have backup. You don't have food that you can just go to at the grocery store and get your ability to feed your family this coming year, imagine, it depends entirely on whether those rains come or not. And imagine, as you're thinking about this, and you're realizing you don't have any control over whether the rain comes or not, imagine your pagan neighbor says to you, well, I got, I got the fix, it's right here. Um, there's a God who's actually in charge of all this, his name's Baal, and all you have to do is just make your offerings to him, kind of pay him off, make sure he's happy, and he'll send the rain for you. But, but you've got to watch out, because if you get on his bad side, no crops, dryness for you. Can you start to see the allure? It's the same thing that is powering 
so much of human actions today. In fact, we could say that all of human actions all day, every day, since the foundation of the world is driven by worship. Whom do you worship? Worship, especially idolatry. Idolatry offers to us the allure of control, the ability to control things you cannot control. And it threatens dire consequences if you don't worship so-and-so God. So just to take a, a very common example, male-female relationships, they're a huge idol in our time. You want to have a satisfied life? This is what the world says. You want to have a satisfied life? The world says you better be in a relationship. You better have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And the idol makes the really big promises. It says lifelong happiness and contentment if you worship this idol. And it also threatens severe things if you ignore the idol, loneliness, ridicule, and so on. Now, of course, romantic relationships can be a very good thing, a gift from God. It could be a way that we honor God by seeking, you know, is this the person that you want me to spend my life with? And, and it can be, be a beautiful thing. But good things, here's the point, good things become idols when we feel that we absolutely must have them, when we feel we cannot live without them, when we are willing to disobey God to get whatever that thing is, and we're willing to give to this other thing, the allegiance and the worship that is, belongs to God alone, that's an idol. It's a replacement God. And children, you know, you know what an idol is. You've, you've experienced this. We've all experienced this, haven't we? It's anything that you want too much. You know, there's one last cookie. You want that so bad, right? And your parents said, not for you but you want it so bad you steal it when nobody's looking, you eat it in secret. That cookie has become an idol. You know, you're willing to, to fight your brother to get this. Okay, now you're willing to disobey God. You're willing to not love your brother. You're willing to hurt that person to get what you want. That thing, you want it too much now. It is an idol. You're starting to see how idolatry is a really big thing, not just for Israel, not just for ancient times. We're not just talking about golden statues. We're talking about what powers our hearts, we're talking about what we're chasing after. I mean, do you realize the torrents of worship that are presently being poured out in this nation on entertainment, money, relationships, stuff, it is the fundamental sin of the human race. It is now and always has been the fundamental sin of the human race, worshiping something other than the true God. And so we're going to fight that sin today. We're going to fight it with the power of the Word of God. We're going to fight it with the expose of idolatry that's given to us here in Jeremiah 10. We're going to see first... On how about we're going to see first how empty idols actually are. How empty idols actually are in contrast to the great and true God. That's going to be our first point. And then we're going to talk about how Jesus alone can change our idol worshiping hearts. So if you want to, you want to forsake idols? There's only one way to worship the true and living God, and it's through the power of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we're going to see just how beautiful a life is. It's taken up 
with true worship of the true God. So let's first look at what Israel's idols and our idols are actually like. And there's four things I want us to see here. First is they inspire meaningless fear. Look at verse 2. Learn not the ways of the nations, God says, nor be dismayed, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. So what would happen is like the ancient pagans, they'd look out at the night sky, they'd see something very unusual like a comet. And they would conclude, uh-oh, this is a sign from the gods that something terrible, some terrible calamity is about to happen. We haven't been faithful enough worshiping our gods sufficiently. Time to get more sacrifices going. The gods are planning some kind of doom, and they're filled with terror. Now, we may look at that and say, oh, man, they didn't know anything. Our gods terrorize us in the same way. If our idol, for example, is other people's approval, well, how many of us, myself included, have struggled with something that we said that we realize later was really stupid, and we're fretting, and we're feeling super embarrassed, and we're just going around and around and around about that thing that we said, and we're afraid of what they're thinking of us right now. Um, We haven't done enough, in other words, to please them. Therefore, we're afraid. Or what if our idol is work? If our idol is work, then we're always stewing, even when we're supposed to be resting, we're always stewing about what we should have done or how there's more we have to do. Everything hangs on us, and we're afraid. Oh, man, I better get back into the office, get, get back to work on this. We're afraid because if we don't worship that idol as we ought, big bad consequences are coming. And God says to this, Emptiness. It's vanity. The customs of the peoples are vanity. And here's why he's, he's wanting us to see this. He's saying they're inspiring meaningless fear, and the reason why it's inspiring meaningless fear, and the reason why the fears are meaningless, emptiness, is the second point he wants us to see about idols, and that is that they are powerless. They are powerless. Verse 5. You can tell he's, 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 really, he's mocking the idols here, right? They can't speak. They have to be carried around. <laughs> they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. This is one of my favorite lines in this passage. Don't be afraid of them. They can't do any evil. Neither is it in their power to do any good. <laughs> they just can't do anything. So don't be afraid of them that they're going to, like, you know, be angry with you and bring consequences on you because you didn't give them enough worship. But at the same time, don't chase after them as if they're going to pour out all these blessings on you if you worship them. And if we're wrapped, our minds and our hearts are wrapped around a given idol, it's actually really hard to believe this. It's impossible for them to do any good. It's impossible for them to do any harm. It takes a lot of courageous faith to believe that when it's our own personal pet idol that's in question. So if your idol is food, the idea that you can go the whole day without your daily splurge, and that you can actually be content and satisfied without it. Really hard. Really hard to believe that. And what the Lord is trying to help us to see is that's the power of idols, is the lie that they can do harm or that they can do good. And God's saying, you've got to undercut that lie. And you've got to see that it's offering what it cannot give. It's threatening what it cannot do. 
and you have to see through the lie. You have to see it as just that inert statue that has to be carried around. You've got to nail it up so that it doesn't topple over. That's how powerless false gods actually are. Two more things he wants us to see. They're so important if we're really going to break free of the power of idols. The third thing is this. Idols are figments of our imagination. Idols are figments of our imagination. We construct idols. This is the difference between a true God and a false God. The true God makes us. The false gods are made by us. We construct idols. They depend on us. Look at verse 3. He's like, hey, let's just remember where this statue came from. It came from the forest. The, the guy had to go out there. He had to chop down the tree, and then he had to work the tree down into the proper shape, and then they had to decorate it with silver and gold. They had to fasten it with the hail, hammer and nails so it doesn't top, topple over. And then it says in verse 9, oh, yeah, they, they dress it like a king. Like, he's, this, this little, little statue is dressed in purple. I mean, that's expensive clothes. And so it's reminding us, yeah, like people are investing so much into their idols. I mean, they're dressing them like kings in Israel. And in our times, we are pouring out all of our energy, all of our, our thoughts and imaginations and money and strength toward our idols. So, yeah, they seem so valuable, but that's just it. It's, it's just an apparition. It's just a figment of our imaginations. And what God's wanting us to see is we are constructing this in our minds. This is something that people have invented, and they're saying, look, this is what you've got to do if you want to be happy and successful and wealthy and all that. And we have to see through it like, okay, this is man-made stuff. This is not truth. And the last thing we need to see about idols is this, that they are doomed. Verse 11, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Verse 15, at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Where, where are all idols going? Doom. To the pit of hell. That is where all idols are headed. These are rivals to God, and God will not abide them. He will destroy them. And so what happens when you align yourself with an idol? You are aligning yourself with something that is worthless, yes, but you're also aligning something, yourself with something that is an affront to the living God and the, to the true God. And so this is the key thing. That is if we're trying to get away from idols, part of what we have to see is that it will betray you. Every idol will shame in the end those who worship them. So just think about this. Here's three examples. Everybody who worships entertainment, you know, somebody who can, like, quote all the popular TV shows, they've seen them all, and they're just like, they know all the actors, they know all the lines, and it's just like, this is their worth, this is their significance, the fact that I am totally up on all this stuff. On the last day, Jesus will appear, and he will show himself to be the truly glorious one, the one who's truly worthy of all our love and adoration, and they'll, they'll be looking at Jesus, realizing, here's the one I should have been giving my life to, giving my life to knowing and, and uh, absorbed, being absorbed with. And here I have been absorbed with all this stuff. It's just meaningless. Their idol will betray them. Or people who worship health, 
and who invest tons of time and money in medicines and exercises and vitamins and special food on the last day when their bodies are cast into destruction. It will all be in vain. All their efforts to preserve their life will be thwarted in the end, no matter what. Or people who worship stuff, let's say they have the coolest collection of ridiculously expensive sports cars. On the last day, they will be stripped of that. And all that stuff that they, they cherished will be just taken straight from them. And the true treasure, Jesus Christ, they will have no part in because their idol was worthless, and their idol betrayed them. And so Jeremiah, what's he doing? He's ripping the mask off the idols. He's trying to help us to see through just what counterfeits they are and how they are deceiving us. He's trying to help us to see. And can you say this when you start to really internalize just how worthless idols are? Can you say what he says, that they are a delusion, that they are worthless? This is what God wants us to say about the idols that we struggle with. Yes, we as Christians struggle with idols. Yes, we as Christians disobey God sometimes. And if we disobey God, that means that we're loving something more than we love Him. So I want you to just reflect for a moment. What are the idols of your life? What are the idols that you presently are struggling with? What are the good things that have become ultimate things? For you, that you've elevated over God, that you're willing to disobey sometimes in order to get. One of the things that's really helped me in my own thoughts about this is just trying to assess my own heart. Um, is Tim Keller's book Counterfeit Gods, and he has this really helpful distinction between surface idols and what he calls deep idols. So surface idols are the things that it seems that our hearts are really set on, right? Things like money, stuff, entertainment. A particular person, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse, a hobby, a child, music, work, the American government, whatever. Anything can become an idol, right? So there's like the surface idol, what it seems like all our, all our heart is spent upon. But then there's the deep idols below the surface. And the deeper idols are, are the things that are really compelling our worship of the surface Idols. So these are things like intense longing for approval, for comfort, for control. So a people pleaser. They may deeply, you know, like make a huge idol out of their spouse. They so want their spouse's approval. But what's that? What's, un- what's underneath that is this deeper desire for the approval of other people. I have to have this and I'm looking for it from this person. The deep idol is powering the surface idol. So then when their spouse just offers them some, you know, feedback saying, you know, some constructive criticism on something, they, they suddenly fly off the handle and, like, like, lose control and become utterly enraged. And their spouse is like, whoa, what did I say, right? Well, you, you've just touched the idol, right? The deeper idol has been violated, and so Paul Tripp, he writes this. I think it's so helpful. And this is, this is kind of a paradigm shift. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something. It's just a matter of what or whom they serve. So you are a worshiper. You cannot help being a worshiper. It's part of how you are created as a creature. You are created to be a worshiper, and you will worship something. And if that thing that you worship is something other than the true and living God, 
if all your hopes and longings and desires are centered on anything other than God, then Jeremiah 10 is warning you, your idol will betray you in the end. And so, as Jeremiah 10 is drilling into our hearts here, it's showing us that we need to take this seriously. And there's one last thing that it wants us to see as we're just talking about the, the, the bankruptcy of idols. There's one last consequence we have to see, and it is the worst of all the consequences. And it is this, that everyone always becomes what you worship. Look at verse 8. They, that is the wise and learned people of the nations, are both stupid and foolish. Why? Because the instruction of idols is but wood. So the idols are stupid. They're dumb. They can't speak. And what happens when you worship empty stuff like that? Well, you become empty. So part of the, 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 the stakes here is when you worship something, when your focus is on this thing, and you're just so, like, say you're so absorbed with clothes, and there's nothing you're thinking about except, like, the next clothes you want to get, and you're bu oh, constantly buying more clothes, and you're constantly, like, caught up with how you look and your appearance and the latest styles and everything, well, guess what? You will become a mannequin. You will become what you worship. You will become a lifeless person where there is nothing to you apart from your clothes. So you become what you worship. What we just said in our confession of faith, Psalm 135, those who make idols become like them. Those who, who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols are not something you want to mess with. So what should we do? What if we want to be free from idols? What if you're looking at your heart and you're like, I have idols. I need to get away from these. What does Jeremiah 10 say? Well, this is where, I love this, woven with all these words ridiculing the idols are all these words praising the living God. Did you notice that? There's all these words that are showing how just empty and lifeless idols are, but then right next to it, there's all these praise words. So look at this. In contrast to the idols that need to be nailed into position unless they topple over, verse 6, verse six says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, in your, and your name is great in might. Or the idols, they have to be made by us, Right? But the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. He formed all things, verse 16. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. And there's that allusion, right, to Baal is constantly promising, I'll give you the rain, I'll give you the rain. Well, who actually causes the mist to rise from the ends of the earth? It's the creator of heaven and earth. The true creator makes his own images, us. False gods, false images, we have to make them. Or in contrast to the idols who can't do any good or can't do any harm. Look at verse 10. The Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. This is a God worthy of fearing. This is the God we should be afraid of not worshiping. And as we think about the fearfulness of God, the most fearful the most awe-inspiring, the, th the thing that makes you most quake in your boots is this, that he was willing to humble himself and to become part of this creation 
in order to free us from the worship of creation. That is the most extraordinary, most fearful thing that God has done. We have all been idolaters. We've exchanged the worship of the uncreated God for the worship of creation. What did God do? He didn't destroy us. He came down. And in his mercy, think about this, the son left his throne, took on created flesh, became a man so that then he could rescue us from our idolatry. Jesus is nothing less than God in the flesh, the creator in all his power, and yet he's, he's just in our humble, created flesh. Here he is. He's a humble man, and he's showing the tremendous power that he has paradoxically, by dying. That is the greatness of our God. And why is that so great? Why are we focusing on that? Well, this is the solution if you want to break free of idolatry, is you need to see how great the true and the living God is. You want to see how great and awesome the true and living God is? You look at the cross. This is how God frees us from idols. You know, here's us. We're, we're grasping our idol, and we're holding on to it for dear life. And if anybody tries to take it from us, we'll fight them. Well, you know, one approach is to try to pry open your hand, right, when you're gripping it so hard. That's not God's way. Instead, what does he do? He shows us his tremendous self-sacrificial love. And you start to look at the cross, and you're like thinking to yourself, my idol would never do that for me. My idol would never die for me. In fact, as I think about it, all this idol does is it takes from me, and it takes, and it takes, and it takes. I've never, I'm, if your idols work, you've never done enough work. You always have to work more and more and more. If your idol is your kids, well, there's always better parents out there, and you always ought to be doing more and more and more. Why aren't you doing more? If your idol is alcohol, well, you get sober again, and you have to get more and more and more. Your idol's always taking. Not like your idols is the living God, who, when we had disdained him and worshipped everything but him, he came and died in our place. There's no one like this. And when you start to comprehend this, the stupendous love that caused Jesus to come down and die on the cross, you start to say in a whole new way, verse 6, there is none like you. There is none like you. And that is how Jesus wins over our idols. He wins by capturing our affections with his awesome love. He comes and shows us there is nothing like this, the living God. And when we start to see that, all of a sudden we're not crying that, uh, you know, <laughs> you're grabbing that idol like this. You know, you're, you say your idol is alcohol. You're, you're, you're grabbing it and you're trying to save every last little drop, squeeze every last little drop out of it. Instead, you're like, pour it down the drain. Cast it away from me. It's worthless to me because I have the true prize is the living God. And you know, this is the great difference, coming to our third point, the last point. This is the great difference between Jeremiah's time and ours today. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the age when the power of God's love has been poured out decisively from heaven to destroy the power of idols. Israel was living in the time before the great outpouring of the Spirit where they were stuck in idolatry. They were, they were slaves of their idols. They tried to stop over and over, and they could not. Sin was too powerful. But this is the age of freedom from idols. That was the whole point of us reading 1 Thessalonians 1. 
Remember that? I said, here, here are pagans, not just, you know, former Israelites. These are pagans in Thessalonica. And what does it say? They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is the age of God crushing the power of idols, releasing our grip from those terrible things that we were in bondage to. This is the age where he's taking idolaters, people who are slaves of money and of relationships and power, and he's making us into true worshipers, truly his children. So, if this is God's agenda, to be destroying the power of idolatry, if this is what he's up to in this present time, how do we get on board with that agenda? Well, we need to fight idolatry, and we need to start in our own hearts. And the first step is this. You need to see your idols. You need to even see them that they are there. They're, they're really good at blinding you to their existence. So here's, here's some idol detectors. I'm going to put, put some idol sensors on you. What are the things you feel you cannot live without? The things you feel you cannot live without. What are the things you are willing to sin in order to get? Where you're on the sly. You don't think anybody sees, but God sees. You're trying to get that thing. You know it's wrong, but you want it so bad. Where do you feel most threatened when God takes something away from you? Where do you feel that Jesus is not enough? You're like, okay, I've got Jesus. Thankful for that. Thank you, Jesus. But I also really need this. Where is Jesus not enough for you? What is at the center of your affections? Where do you spend your time, your thoughts, your money? Very good idea as to what you actually are worshiping. You know, you really, you really know what you worship when you look at your checkbook, when you look at your credit card statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart, and there your tr- worship is also. And so we have, to, we have to acknowledge that what we're seeking above God is, is an idol. And this is hard for us because as Christians, there's lots of good things that God has made in this world, and we're so thankful God has given us the ability to see that they're good, to enjoy them with thanks to him. But good things can become idols. Family can become an idol. Marriage can become an idol. Friends, education, all kinds of things can become an idol. We can take the good thing and overexalt it to make it the ultimate thing. So you need to see your idols. You need to acknowledge them to God. Of course, he already knows. But he is honored when we, when we bring before him, we bring them out in the open and say, God, I've been, I've been living a lie. I've been, I've been worshiping these things other than you. And then we surrender them. You know what? That's, that's what it means when we talk about, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. What that means is he alone will be my, my focus. All my worship, all my heart will be for him. And yes, I can enjoy these other things for him. And so when you surrender your life to Jesus, you surrender every one of your idols. You cast them away. You trash them. Gone. I am going to serve him and him alone. And so we stop fearing the consequences of not worshiping those idols. Instead, we fear God alone. We cast all of our hopes for joy and satisfaction and life on Jesus. You are set free by the power of Jesus from idols. That is what Jesus has decisively done by the cross. He has broken the power of idols in your heart. So live as one who is free. Do not give your affections and your heart to anyone else except to God. 
everything else that you love, love for his sake. And give it up when he asks you to give it up because there's nothing that can be compared to him. Nothing is so worthy of our love and affection as Jesus. So who will you worship? Who will be the center of your life? Everything is writing on this. Worship Jesus. Worship the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and worship him alone. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we have turned to you from idols to worship you and worship you alone. And yet, as Christians, we know we often keep in our back pocket idols of the heart, things that have crept in and have taken over our hearts and that are rivals to you. And Lord, we are dismayed by this. We, we grieve our idolatry. And we say, Lord, you alone are worthy of worship. You alone, our great divine spouse, you are worthy of all the affection and worship of your people. Lord, we do not want to have anything on the side. We don't want to cheat on you in our worship, but instead, Lord, want to give all that worship and all that affection to you. So we pray, renew us in our love, renew us in our joy and our salvation, stir us up with love for you that we might abandon all false gods for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.